Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Pam Grossman. Dr. Grossman is the Dean of the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania. She is also the George and Diane Weiss Professor of Education. Dr. Grossman is a leading expert in teacher preparation, teacher quality, and teacher professional learning. She is chair of the board of the Spencer Foundation and vice president of the National Academy of Education, among other titles. She is also, maybe most importantly, a former high school teacher. I love professors of education who are former teachers. There are far fewer than you might think. I've had a few on the podcast, and in my opinion, they provide a unique perspective on the profession. I wanted to speak with Dr. Grossman because of her research on the connections between the support teachers receive, the quality of their classroom practice, the impact of their practice on student learning, and most relevant to our conversation today, the likelihood that they will remain in the profession. Dr. Grossman, welcome to Fishing for Problems. Thank you for having me. So I've provided a short introduction. Can you tell the listeners a bit about yourself, your history, your research interests, and what you're working on right now? So as you mentioned, I started my career as a high school English teacher and actually went to college to become a high school English teacher um, and really saw that as the profession that I wanted to stay in. I love teaching. I loved teaching adolescents. Uh, I taught in multiple states. Um, and for me, uh, teaching has never lost its appeal or fascination. And I'm lucky that I've continued to teach throughout my career, even making the shift from teaching high school to teaching at the university level. I've also been fascinated by the question of teacher learning. Um, so I went through a teacher education program um, as an undergraduate and didn't think like many teachers out there didn't think I had learned a lot until I began to work with teachers who had never had teacher preparation. And I thought, you know what? I think I learned something after all. And so I became fascinated with what is it that people can learn in their pre-service teacher education program um, that, that prepares them to be successful with students. And then how do we continue to support teachers in continuing to grow and learn? Because I, I taught for eight years and I was always learning things. I think that's one thing about teaching. It keeps you humble. <laughs> you know, with a new set of students, you um, encounter new challenges. And so you're always learning. It's one of the, I think, the really wonderful things about teaching at whatever level. So for me, this is, you know, a, really my identity, my primary identity really is as a teacher. Um, in my own research, I have, again, looked at those issues of how do we prepare teachers? So again, they can be uh, successful, but I'm also really deeply interested in these questions of retention um, because again, teachers make a huge impact in students' lives and they get better <laughs> as, they, as they stay in the classroom. Again, that learning translates into student learning. Um, so when people leave after two years, we're hurting the students, you know, it's, it's, we're hurting the schools that have that churn, but we know both that teachers grow in their impact on student learning and the amount of churn and teacher turnover in a school hurts student learning. So I also have a long commitment to thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we retain teachers? Uh, in a profession that has often been set up as a short-term occupation, 
rather than a long-term profession. Thanks for that. Uh, that's helpful to, to know your background. And I, uh, too, am deeply interested in future professional learning. That's my day-to-day job. I am also working with two student teachers at the moment, two uh, high school math teachers. So I'm constantly thinking about ways that I can support them. And um, as I think about my dissertation too, I'm closer and closer, I feel like, to leaning toward just teacher practice and how do you how do you improve it? How do you create opportunities for uh, professional learning that helps teachers become better? Um, but the focus of our conversation today is that topic of teacher retention. I'm interested in the current state of public education in the U.S. I have the pleasure of working with teachers on a daily basis. I'm married to a teacher. I have many friends in the profession and I'm seeing a lot of burnout. I'm hearing from school and district leadership that morale is at historically low rates. I heard from a friend who is a principal in a local district that he thinks there's going to be a mass exodus out of the profession at the end of the school year. Um, This is of course all anecdotal. It remains to be seen what's gonna happen. COVID no doubt has a part to play, but its impact on the lives of teachers has been more of an amplifying force. It is not the origin. Your research on this topic predates COVID. I personally left the profession in 2018 after eight years of teaching. Interestingly, my reasons for leaving were not due to some of the primary causes of attrition we're going to talk about today, um, although I think it's a a central cause. Um, So I think it's important to explore the historical antecedents to our status quo in hopes of trying to better understand the status quo and maybe stem the tide of teacher dissatisfaction. So all that being said, can you speak a bit to the history of turnover pre-COVID, such as typical rates of attrition, who's leaving, who's staying? starting with the statistics before digging into the causes themselves? Well, I, I know you're talking to my colleague, uh, Richard Ingersoll, who will who has been doing a lot of work in this, and he'll share some of this with you as well. But I guess I want to go back even further and say that historically, teaching was uh, in the United States, not in other countries, was uh, conceived of as a short-term occupation, primarily for women, once women married, they could no longer continue teaching. So the turnover in teaching in some ways uh, is a historical uh, fact from the very ways the occupation was developed early on. And the fact that again, it was seen primarily as women's work um, and unmarried women's work. So (laughs) there was a, and I think that history, uh, both the gendered nature of the profession and its historical antecedents are important to remember as we think about turnover in teaching. Um, It's not detached from that historical reality. I think that um, began to shift uh, in the 20th century where people again enter teaching and had longer careers, but there has, you know, pre-COVID has always been um, a fair bit of attrition in teaching. It's something that people have been talking about for a long time. Typically, the statistic you'll hear is roughly up to 50% of teachers leave within the first five years. And uh, my colleague, Richard Ingersoll, talks about this. It's not a problem that we're not preparing enough teachers. It's what he calls the leaky bucket. It's that so many people are leaving in those early years, and then you're preparing more people uh, to take their places, who then, you know, 50% of them will leave. So you're constantly trying to catch up to that number. 
So, you know, it's been really interesting to watch the profile of teachers over the last few decades. Uh, typically, it's been a little bit uneven with, you know, a lot of earlier career teachers and then people who are, you know, longtime professionals who've stayed in the career. A few years ago, pre-COVID, the modal number of years of teaching, the modal in the United States was one. There were so many new teachers. Um, and to me that, uh, and of course they're not equally distributed. Um, the suburbs it would look very different than in urban school districts. And so, you know, of course that's a huge issue because then you have a problem of expertise. Uh, if you have schools and there are, I visited schools like this where the most experienced teacher in the department had three years of experience. And you believe that it takes years to develop expertise, you have no expertise, <laughs> which then affects people's ability to continue to learn um, on the job. So pre-COVID, there was already an issue around teacher uh, attrition. And um, I think, again, sort of a perspective that teaching can be a part-time thing that you do while you're thinking about other things. Something that, you know, Teach for America has done a lot of good things in terms of bringing people into the classroom who might not have otherwise thought of it. One downside is it portrayed teaching as a part-time two-year thing you do while you're, I mean, they've changed um, in, in some of that, but early on that was the, you know, do this while you're thinking about where else to go. So I think we're fighting a history around, you know, this isn't necessarily a profession you go in, in for the long term. The second um, organizational point is teaching is a very flat career. Um, that what you're doing on your first day in the job is pretty much what you're doing in the 20th year on the job. And that, again, when you think about um, professional socialization is not designed to keep people in and continuing to grow. And particularly if you want to try new things, uh, but keep grounded in the classroom. So I also taught for eight years. And I often think I might've stayed in teaching if I could have taught and led professional development um, part of the time or engaged in research part of the time. You know, there've been a lot of talk about career ladders uh, for teachers or career lattices where they can step out of the classroom for a year or two and then go back. But teaching in most places continues to be, you either leave or you, pretty much remain doing the same thing unless you leave for administration. So there's certainly pre-COVID uh, forces, organizational forces uh, that have, you know, again, not necessarily made teaching a, a, a long time occupation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate the call out to more opportunities for things like informal leadership positions uh, for educators. That's something that in my experience, schools are not particularly good at creating within their organizations. You're sort of teacher or your admin, and there is a sharp dividing line um, between those two groups. Uh, I know of friends who have moved from the classroom to administration and their friends, former teachers, all of a sudden view them as other 
um, almost as, I'm not sure I want to go far as to say enemy, but there is that defining line between those two groups and creating more opportunities to uh, keep things fresh, to try new things. Um, I think back to my time in the classroom as well and uh, the possibility of at some point returning and all the things that I've learned in between that uh, perspective, that distance from the classroom, helping me I would think be a better teacher if I was was to return. Um, I also appreciate, and this wasn't necessarily something that I had thought too much about, but just the, the historical roots, as you alluded to, of teaching being a short-term profession. Um, I'm not sure I would call that a feature, probably a bug. Uh, is what I might call it, but trying to escape those historical roots and establish among, you know, other things that we can do, a profession that does feel like something that teachers can spend, you know, 10, 20 years in, um, not something to sort of uh, act for what I've seen a lot of uh, TFAers, Teach for America teachers, as kind of a resume builder. Um, I know you said they uh, have, I think, tried to move away from that. Um, and so that's a, that's a positive development. But I also uh, started my profession, teaching profession, um, as an intern uh, in a two-year program. So even for me, it was to see if it was something that I was interested in doing long-term, and I immediately fell in love with it. Um, but uh, I spent eight years, and then I, I unfortunately had to had to get out myself. Yeah, no, I think that, um, as I said, it, and I don't think in in this current moment people are necessarily entering any uh, profession yeah. or occupation thinking they're going to stay in it for 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. I, I think we're in a very different moment, even pre-COVID, where there is more movement. There's more career movement. There are people who are, and, and you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And again, you know, I look at mm -hmm. both of us, we taught for eight years and went on, we're still connected to education. Um, most of my, my doctoral students have had teaching experience and they go on to become teacher educators or professional development, having that classroom experience. So it's not necessarily that we need everybody to stay in for their entire mm -hmm. career. I think that's unrealistic and that's not true of most uh, professions. For me, the big issue is how do we get people to stay in the classroom long enough um, so that they can uh, get past the most difficult years, which really are those first two years. Um, again, one of the things that I've learned from my friends who do the work on value-added uh, mm -hmm. modeling is that first-year teachers often can have a negative effect on student learning and get them to the point where they're more successful, um, where the students are more successful. And again, they're able to uh, build on that. So one of the things when I was still at Stanford, we created, and I was very worried about this very issue of losing early career teachers who, if they could just stay in, you know, five more years, it would make a huge difference um, for students at their schools. So we created the Hollyhock Fellowship for early career teachers in underserved schools that really targeted teachers in their third through sixth years of teaching. Interesting. Um, and created, um, again, both some recognition uh, of their promise, some learning opportunities. So it was a two-year program and they came to Stanford in the summer 
Uh, it was a national program, so it brought 100 high school teachers together across the nation, which was, you know, all teaching in, in some ways similar kinds of schools, but in different states and contexts. Uh, to learn together. And then they got two full years of coaching. So they really had opportunities both to form a professional network that was broader than their school, to learn and deepen their own practice. It was very practice focused, to develop leadership plans for their schools, to become that teacher leader. Um, and that has actually been quite successful in retaining teachers. I said, well, at least we'll keep them in for two more years of the program, right? <laughs> and then, you know, most of them have stayed in the classroom because part of it is getting over that hump mm -hmm. of those, those early challenging years, but also being given the recognition the the learning opportunities and professional development and being treated like professionals, frankly. So I think as we think about this problem, we shouldn't think of it as a uniform problem, um, that there are different challenges for, as I mentioned before, urban versus mm -hmm. suburban schools, for early career teachers versus mid or later career teachers, um, for teachers of color uh, versus white teachers. There's also a difference both in, in retention and in the kinds of supports teachers might need to feel successful. Um, and and really think about it from those different lenses. Absolutely, and in uh, in my work coaching teachers, what I notice certainly with first and even second year teachers is they're struggling to find their voice in the classroom, uh, finding sort of I don't, I'm not sure I want to say owning the space, but just being comfortable with uh, younger kids, um, trying to navigate that that uh, component uh, being a leader in the classroom and as you said uh, if they're leaving by end of first year or second year before they're even able to sort of establish their presence establish their voice um, students are uh, unfortunately the ones who are most impacted by by that experience um, so I want to spend some time digging into the causes of teacher turnover and focusing on a 2011 paper you co-authored with Donald Boyd and others titled The Influence of School Administrators on Teacher Retention Decisions. I hesitate to get too technical, but I think it's important to touch upon how you know what you know. So before digging into your findings, can you speak to just the data that you collected? Because uh, I found that to be particularly interesting. Um, what was unique about that as compared to numerous other studies in this space that have looked at teacher retention? So this was a, an amazing study um, that I was lucky to be involved with along with my colleagues, uh, Don Boyd, Susanna Loeb, um, Hamp, Lankford and Jim Wyckoff. And the idea was to look at teaching from a labor market perspective, which I think is a very helpful way to think of it. This um, prior work that group had done had shown that teaching is a very local profession. Uh, people generally teach very close to where they themselves went to high school. <laughs> so when you think about teaching again, it's helpful to take a uh, labor market perspective, thinking locally, um, because many of the policies are state policies or district policies. The kinds of jobs that are available are driven by the particular labor market, the conditions. So there's so much that actually does in our educational system happen locally. 
it's helpful to, to have that. They were able to build an incredible database that included uh, data on student achievement um, from for New York City schools, along with a lot of administrative data on the teachers that they were then able to connect with state level data on teacher preparation. So we knew where people were prepared. So we knew a fair bit about the teachers themselves. Um, and you know, it's an incredible amount of work to create that kind of database where you can look you know, from, and characteristics of the schools as well in which teachers taught because schools differ as we'll talk about in a moment. So uh, we use that database to look at a, a set of questions and we were primarily focused, you won't be surprised on teacher preparation. That's my primary of research. And we were looking at what are the features of teacher preparation that seem to impact the teacher's subsequent impact on student achievement in grades four through eight in English, uh, language arts and math and on retention. So there were really two outcomes we were thinking about from the outset, which is retention and student um, achievement. To gather data, we knew where people had gone and we gathered data on 100 programs in, in New York City schools. Um, and we gathered the syllabi from the methods classes. We interviewed people. We had so we also had a lot of data on um, their programs they had gone through, and then we surveyed all first-year teachers coming into New York in one cohort, and there were six thousand um, that year. So a lot of teachers, <laughs> and then we're able to follow them over time. So it's a it was a very um, in some ways a unique database where we had both what we could learn objectively about the programs, then the students' own perceptions of those programs, um, and then their, uh, student, their own students' scores in their first and second year of teaching, as well as their, you know, whether or not they stayed in their school, uh, in the district, or moved. And what did you find uh, as you all analyzed that data? Why were teachers either leaving their classrooms for other schools or leaving their classrooms altogether for a new profession? Well, as you saw in the, it was really interesting because we had a lot of different hypotheses going in about how maybe the, the nature of their preparation um, might make a difference in terms of retention. Um, if they'd been prepared in particular ways, maybe it was the schools in which they had taught um, or maybe it was the features of the school context um, because we also asked about that. So what we found is uh, two things. One, if you had done your student teaching in a higher functioning school, and we used the New York uh, City Depart Department report card on school culture, you were more likely to, to stay in the classroom in your early careers, and you had higher impact on student learning, whether you went to a similarly high functioning school or a lower functioning school. So that was really interesting. So where you do your student teaching does matter. But the thing that really matters the most <laughs> are the administrators in your building. And we found that uh, trumped most of the other 
uh, elements that if you have a strong principal um, who really supports teachers and a strong administrative team, you're much more likely uh, both to stay in your school, which makes sense, and also to stay uh, in the cl- stay in the classroom. So there's a, a paragraph from that 2011 paper that cites various statistics you gathered from former teachers. Um, after surveying that group, you found that former teachers on average indicated that they currently receive much more recognition and support from their administrators or managers than they had as teachers. Let's let's start here. I'm no longer in the K-12 profession. I was actually fortunate that I did not experience this um, a whole lot at the few schools I taught at. Uh, And I was thinking back, I had five administrators um, in the eight years that I taught, but I recognize that I I was lucky. Um, But can you speak just to to those initial findings around uh, feeling recognized, uh, both um, as a teacher and the importance of that, and also um, as former teachers who say that they left the profession and all of a sudden found themselves in a situation when they were more consistently being recognized for for the work that they were doing. Yeah. You know, again, I think that um, now this, it's important to note that this research predated uh, the work on teacher evaluation, which included a lot of classroom observation. So in this cohort, there weren't necessarily the required classroom observations by administrators that exist now in many districts. Um, so, and we studied this cohort in the first year of teacher, uh, when first year teachers had mentors. Um, so we also, was, and then they took away that program. So it's, it's an interesting cohort for, for a number of reasons. It was also one of the largest uh, first year teacher cohorts. Um, one of the, One of the things though that I think is important is that we need to spend much more time helping principals and other school leaders understand how best to support teachers, how to give constructive feedback, how to make sure that teachers have opportunities um, to to talk about their own work and to be recognized for the work they're, they're doing. I think that, you know, every individual has the need to be recognized. I think that's, you know, in, in, in whatever occupation it is. And, and principals have their hands full as well. I mean, when you look at the job of a principal, they have relatively little time to be the instructional leader that we've asked them to be. Um, but it's important that somebody in the school building, that it's their job, again, to support teachers, to understand what's happening in their classroom, to be there both as a, you know, support, but also somebody who, again, can, can recognize and give that recognition. It's one of the reasons we created the Hollyhock program, again, going back to that is, you know, is again to be able to, we, we asked the principals, the principals had to nominate the teachers and write a letter of recognition. So they actually had to get to know these teachers who were applying and get to know something about their work and then that they'd been selected for this program. Um, and I recognize that, you know, being a principal these days is a more than full-time job. Um, most principals, in fact, are former teachers, so they themselves have had that experience. But I think when we think about schools as organizations, we don't think enough about how teachers can play these roles for other teachers. Going back to my very early point, how do we create a different kind of career structure in, in which teachers 
who've had a number of years of experience and who are known to be effective teachers and also interested in adult learning can be given the time to really support their colleagues in schools while still remaining in the classroom, you know, creating more hybrid roles so you don't have to leave the classroom to, to do these other things. Um, I think there, I think one of the things that always strikes me in these international comparisons is American teachers spend more time in front of kids than any of the high-performing countries uh, in Asia or in Finland. That organized teachers work very differently, where they have more time to work together, um, more time to plan together, more time to reflect, um, and less time, you know, actually in front of the classroom. So, you know, part of this, I think. Uh, as we get to some of the challenges with COVID is, is a moment to rethink how do we organize schools so that they're good places for both students and teachers? Because Seymour Saracen said long ago, you can't have a school that supports student learning if it doesn't also support teacher learning. Well, I love Seymour Saracen and uh, I just love that you called him out because I feel like he's not so well known um, among teachers uh, and even among our teacher educators out there. But um, I can't remember who it was. Oh, I think it was Will Richardson who turned me on to, to Seymour Saracen and I fell in love with his work immediately. Uh, I, I wanna put a pin um, in that idea of helping admin um, support teachers a little bit more. I would love to get to that uh, in a little bit. Uh, but there are a few things I do want to call out. Just, I couldn't agree more. The the idea of teachers playing these roles for other teachers, for teachers having those hybrid positions, for staying in the classroom, at least on a part-time basis. In my experience, even if admin have been teachers at some point in their careers, Stepping away from the job, even for a year, two years, once you get into five plus years, I do think that you lose sight of uh, what it's like to be a classroom teacher. I also think, as you alluded to, because in my experience, they also just have so few opportunities to actually go into classrooms and observe. Um, I could probably count uh, on one hand the number of times at a few of the schools that I taught at that admin came into my classroom, and this was over the course of four or five years, whereas at another school, I had an administrator coming in every two weeks to provide me with intensive coaching. That was the model for all teachers, um, and I got better as a teacher there. Yeah. Um, and those international comparisons, I had the, the pleasure of interviewing Mark Tucker um, uh, for one of the first podcasts um, that I did on Fishing for Problems, and he uh, speaks a lot to the fact that teachers in the US, they spend so much more time, more face time in front of students. But what I didn't see there, and this was a question that, or a conversation I had with an administrator at the last school that I taught at because we were working such long hours, you know, typically 100 hour weeks, um, was that I could work 100 hour weeks if I lasted for two years. Um, the face time is not going to be nearly as much as a teacher who works. 50, 60 hour weeks, but is there for 10, 20 years. Um, and so even there, uh, I think the conversation becomes uh, a little bit more nuanced. Um, 
Speaking to admin, though, uh, because there is so much, I think, to unpack around uh, creating opportunity for teachers to assume some of these roles. Um, you also uh, write that fewer than 10% of those former teachers found their principals to be exceptional in communicating respect or appreciation for teachers. Um, almost 20% of teachers reported that their principals never worked with staff to meet curriculum standards, and 30% stated that their principals did not encourage professional collaboration among teachers. Before digging into the, the present situation, and I guess we'll, we'll touch upon it as well, how do we begin to um, support admin, uh, help them grow uh, in a way that uh, allows them to be more present for teachers, to support teachers more? Um, and obviously there are structural challenges there. I think it is critical just to rethink the profession itself and what a typical day looks like, how much time teachers spend um, in front of students, uh, more hybrid opportunities as you alluded to, but that seems less likely to uh, happen in my, uh, yeah, in, in my experience. So if we just focus on the admin piece, how can we, how can we help admin do their, do their jobs better? Well, again, part of it is um, we, we really ask principals to do so many jobs rolled into one. And I, I think about this often, we have partnership schools here in Philadelphia and I watch uh, principals who really could be great instructional leaders, but literally don't have the time to do that because they're crisis managers, they're developing budgets, they're responding, you know, putting out fires, they're meeting with parents, they're handing out masks, they're, you know, they, they're, their jobs are so full. Um, and not every school has an assistant principal. So again, I think part of it goes back to how do we invest in public education? so that you create sustainable roles for everybody. Because I, I think you know, we're seeing a similar kind of burnout among principals. Um, and again, during COVID, their jobs became even harder just as teachers' jobs became harder. So part of it, I think, is a structural problem that, that would have to be addressed, that it's probably too big of a job for one person. And so you have to think through how do you um, restructure the job either by having other supports, um, somebody who, who's an experienced budget person. I mean, I think about my role as a dean and I, I have a CFO you know, who really helps me. If I had to spend all my time on that, I wouldn't have time to be doing this podcast or a lot of other things, right? Um, and could that person do that from across multiple schools? I mean, I think we need to break the, the hermetic seal on schools and really think what's the expertise need and how can we rethink how that's provided? Um, so that, that would be my first step. The second step is to really um, build teachers, a principal's own understanding of instruction. Um, so I've done a lot of professional development with principals around um, practices for teaching uh, English language arts and helping them understand it and then understand how to coach it. Right now we're doing a lot of work on project-based learning of professional development for teachers, uh, but we also have a leadership track where we invite the leaders uh, to come and again, to learn the practices, but also to learn how do you give helpful feedback to teachers? It's not something, you know, you're born knowing and many, you know, again, given the career trajectory, they may have been very good teachers of young children, you know, coaching adults is very different. So where do you build that skill set? You know, in our leadership preparation programs, we need to think it starts there. 
but then again, continue to support uh, principals in their own professional development. To me, that was one of the upsides of the um, requirement around classroom observations is that principals actually had to be trained on all these classroom observation measures um, and know what to look for in classrooms. But the other piece of that is giving high quality feedback based on what you see. And again, that is to a certain extent, a separate skill. So I think, um, I think that whole set of instructional leadership skills are things that can be learned and coached. And I don't think it's always the principal who has to be doing it, right? Um, it, it can be, uh, and more and more we've moved in, in US schools towards having coaches in buildings that are there to provide that support. And there's been positive research on the effects of having a coach. But you don't get better without feedback. I think we all know that, right? You know, you keep doing the same thing over and over again. You don't necessarily get better unless somebody comes in and says, oh, you might think about it this way. I, I mean, I think coaching is one of the few ways that uh, avenues for teachers to get better at what they do. And when it comes to coaching, and if I ever come across teachers who are resistant to coaching, I always like referencing um, basketball. I'm a big basketball fan, uh, fan of the Warriors. And uh one of the best players uh, on the Warriors, one of the best players of all time, Steph Curry, has three, four, five coaches that work with him one-on-one -on -one to become better uh, each day, each week, each month, each year. And this is somebody who is, again, you know, the apex of uh, his profession um, and is getting constant, constant coaching. And uh, and so it is one of one of the few ways I feel like um, to to improve upon one's practice. And I think it's it's also important to recognize that it's not just about giving feedback as well, but on the teacher side, receiving that feedback and actually doing something with it. And that speaks, I think, to the structural issues in this space of creating those opportunities for both of those things to happen for teachers to get that feedback from principals, high quality feedback, feedback that is relevant to their practice. And then teachers having the opportunity to implement that feedback. And you have this cycle of improvement, hopefully. Um, I taught at a school, uh, as I mentioned earlier, where I was getting coaching um, somebody in my classroom every two weeks uh, to observe me. I didn't know when that person was coming in too. Um, I was also meeting with that person on a, a biweekly basis. And when I think back to my teaching career, that was one of the one of the few ways that I felt like I was able to improve because I had constant eyes on me. And I also just knowing that somebody was going to be coming into my classroom on the regular um, was also a way to hold me accountable for for my practice. Exactly. Well, and I think, again, we've built that into, for example, our the Hollyhock program I mentioned earlier, the PBL program of just these cycles of um, people coming together, sharing examples of practice, getting feedback, both from a coach and from their peers, going back into the classroom, trying something new, bringing that back. Um, if you haven't read Atul Gawande's piece on coaching that was in the New Yorker a few years ago, I highly recommend it. And he does make this, this point about um, kind of the um, value of a good coach and mm -hmm. uh, what we can learn from that in, across so many professions. 
Yeah, I mean, I uh, in my in my paid job uh, as uh, somebody who delivers professional development, that certainly is a coaching prof- uh, position. Although, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do a PD with a, a school and then come back three months later and do another PD. So it's sporadic, and I'm not embedded in in the school. Um, I'm coaching a couple teachers, but. Uh, I feel like I have so much room to grow in that, and it certainly isn't easy just thinking about the kinds of quality feedback, how to deliver that feedback, um, how to respond to teachers who are responding to the feedback that I provide them. Um, It's a highly complex process, and it requires, I think, a lot of training on, on both ends. Yeah. Bringing the conversation to the present for uh, the last 10 minutes or so that we have, thinking about teacher turnover um, and the potential challenges that the profession might face were there to be this mass exodus out of the profession, Um, the possibility that a lot of teachers return to teaching this year, looking forward to uh, being back in the classroom only to find that somehow this year was harder than last year. Um, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? What do you what do you perceive to be the state of the K-12 profession? Well, even before COVID, I was uh, very, very worried about the future of the profession because the pipeline into teacher education programs um, had been uh, diminishing. So in Pennsylvania alone, this these data I think were as of you know 2019. Um, there had been a more than 50% drop in people entering education programs in Pennsylvania. At the national level, that was 38% drop. Um, That was (laughs) pre-COVID. So we entered COVID with fewer people, and and many of us who are deans of schools of education have been seeing this, a drop in the number of people who are entering our teacher education programs which really worries me. Um, And again, go back to that, uh, you know, Richard said, it's not a problem of teacher supply, it's the teacher retention, but right now it's also a problem with teacher supply. um, If you have fewer people who are electing to go into the profession. I think we have made teaching um, in, in the United States into a not very attractive career option for young people. And one of the um, low points in my life was seeing the Time Magazine articles, you might've seen them, that showed a picture of a individual, generally a woman who said, you know, I'm a blood donor, I hold down three jobs. Um, I work two jobs in the summer. I'm a teacher in America. How we've treated teachers and uh, in this country, I think is, Embarrassing, Um, particularly when you think that really, and and countries like Singapore understand this, our biggest resources are human resources. And teachers are the people who have the biggest impact on our children in schools. Uh, We treat it as a glorified babysitter job. We have low expectations for what people need to have going in. You know, again, one of the things that really worries me right now is I see in some states, they're eliminating the bachelor's requirement for substitute teachers. Some states are talking about, do you need, maybe you only need an associate's degree to teach. What does it mean 
for a profession that is centrally about education to say, oh, well, education doesn't matter for our teachers. I mean, it, it, it's staggering to me. Um, so we don't pay teachers well enough relative to other uh, professions that require a college degree. Um, so we can't compete. Um, I always point to nursing as an example of another female. Some of this again is gender, um, but I, I look at nursing uh, as a field, which has been woman dominated again, historically, that's managed to significantly drive up salaries uh, during nursing shortages. But that's because they don't open the floodgates whenever there's a shortage and say, well, really anybody can walk into our hospitals and take care of patients. That's what we do in schools. Really, right now we're letting the National Guard, <laughs> we're letting anybody come into classrooms right now. Um, if that's that not a crisis, a I'm not sure what is. That is, a, that is a crisis and a disaster for, for our country. Um, so I think we need a sea change in how we value the work of teaching, how we, as in other high-performing countries, reward people who choose to go into teaching. You know, again, in many of these high-performing countries, and I spent some time in Singapore, it's harder to get into the School of Education than it is to the School of Engineering because teachers are actually paid more than engineers when they come out. They're valued. They're given multiple opportunities for professional development. Um, they don't have a problem with retention because it's a very good career with lots, again, of, of, of opportunities to continue to learn and grow. I am happy to see that governors across red and blue states right now are talking about this problem of teacher pay, um, not because it's the thing that most motivates teachers. We know it's actually the work itself and the intrinsic rewards of working with students, but I've watched my former you know, students leave because they couldn't afford a family on a teacher's salary. Um, and that shouldn't be. You should be able to choose teaching and know that you can have uh, a strong quality of life uh, and be sustained in that. And so, you know, that to me is one of the fundamental things that have to change, that has to change. Yeah, the teacher pay um, problem is something that I think is, uh, is complicated. I'm not sure that it is, I'm not sure how to, how to frame this. I I left. One of the reasons why I left was because of pay. Um, I was also working, um, uh, uh, again, 80, 100 hour weeks. And I had just had my first daughter and I wanted to spend time with um, this new person in my life uh, rather than working um, from 5 a.m. to you know 12 p.m. or 12 a.m. Um, and just doing it over, over and over again. Um, so while... You know, it might not be a motivator to get into the profession. It certainly can be a motivator to stay in the profession. Um, and so I think it's important to to highlight that. And, you know, there are critics out there who will say that, uh, you know, increasing uh, per capita uh, amount of money spent per student, um, that the research suggests that uh, it doesn't have a huge impact. You look at states like New York that spend you know, something like $20,000 a year per student. 
versus other states, maybe like Utah, that spend seven or eight thousand dollars a year. And you look at some of these comparisons in student achievement, and there aren't they, they aren't, um, I would say, uh, too significant um, to sort of warrant the uh, change in eight thousand or ten thousand dollars. But what I will say is that. On the teacher pay side, it does feel like we're operating within a box. There's a ceiling to this that I think we just need to get rid of completely. And so when critics say something like, you know, we pay teachers more, spend more on students, it's not going to have a big impact. I don't think we've actually explored as a country what it would be like to, you know, pay teachers $150,000 a year, whatever it might be, to really raise that ceiling to a point where um, we're attracting people, as you said, to the profession, they wanna go into schools of ed um, rather than um, you know, schools of engineering, primarily because they just don't see a viable future for themselves yeah. in the space. No, I mean, you know, undergraduates are looking at that and they're looking at, the, again, it's not the, we know it's not the primary motivator, but there have mm -hmm. been studies, including one by my colleague, Susanna Loeb, that um, they used a proposition in San Francisco to raise beginning teacher salaries to see whether or not it would give them a more competitive pool and a bigger pool of prospective teacher candidates. And it did, it had a meaningful effect on, on that teacher pool. So, you know, I think, again, it's, it's thinking about what the entry salaries are. It, it's about what, the, um, what you can expect over the course of a career, how we reward excellence in teaching, uh, the differentiation of roles. I mean, there are many ways to think about this issue, mm -hmm. but the bottom line is in too many states, we don't pay teachers really a living wage. And, and that's, uh, that's a, a crisis. Uh, well, I know you need to go. I appreciate your time. Uh, Dr. Grossman, thank you so much for joining me on Fishing for Problems. Absolutely. Pleasure talking with you.